0: Hello, I'm Danny Akin, President of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Thank you for your interest in our chapel messages, whether you are listening online, on CD, or subscribe to our chapel podcast. Hope that you'll be encouraged and challenged in your walk with Christ as you listen to this message.
1: Eastern has become a bit of a home away from home, and uh, I've had a lovely time here. You always take uh, very good, good care of us. I think if I would be honest with you this morning, which I intend to be, I'm a man who stands before you concerned. I'm concerned that there has been a subtle redefinition of the gospel that is terribly significant for the life and the culture of the local church. It's it's a way in which the culture has influenced the way that we think about who we are, the way that we think about how we struggle, the way that we think about how things in life become better. Maybe the way to to get into this is to talk a little bit about my oldest son, Uh, now 30, which means I must quit thinking of myself as a recent recent graduate of college. Justin was a brilliant little boy, always uh, ahead of the game for us. He was the kind of child, if there was a crack in our parenting, he could drive an 18-wheeler through it. And... The one struggle that Justin had was with gifts. Justin didn't get the concept of gifts. We would go out shopping for Justin for a birthday or whatever, and we would think that we had found the perfect gift for Justin. He would pull open the gift, and in a few minutes, he would be playing with the box. I remember one Christmas where Llewellyn and I did more shopping for Justin than we had done for... Our other three children. We were absolutely persuaded that this Christmas he would play with the toy. And we found what we thought was the ultimate Justin gift. We thought there's no way that he won't play with this gift. We had way more anticipation at the opening of that gift than he did. He was a typical little boy. There's no saving the paper. You know, he just ripped into that gift, pulled it out, was able to mumble. That's nice. (laughs) And with two and within two hours, he was having a glorious time with the box. Now, I think there are many Christians among us who are in that condition I think there, there may be students in this institution that are in that condition. I will be so bold as to say, because I get to leave... That perhaps there are even seminary professors and staff people who are in that condition. You have been given the most awesome gift that humanity could ever be given. It's a gift of stunning beauty. It's gorgeous from whatever vista you would examine it. And yet, in your Christian life, you are content to play with the box. Oh yeah, you, you go to church. You may even read your Bible. You participate in in moments of ministry. Even on Sunday, there may be a particular hymn that for a moment will capture you. But your, your Christian experience is not... Uh, characterized by holding with both hands onto the most precious, gorgeous gift that you could ever be given. You don't live with this deep sense of privilege. How could it be that you, being you, would be given such a wonderful gift? No, you're content with the accoutrements of Christianity. You're content with a little participation in programs. You're content with a little biblical literacy. Sadly, you're content to play with the box. Now, maybe you're saying, "Paul, I, I I sort of get what you're you're saying, but I'm I'm not sure I I completely understand." Well, let me let me say it this way: perhaps there are two significant and life-altering questions that every human being asks. The way you ask, you answer these questions will have everything to do with who you think you are. They will have everything to do with how you structure your life. They will have everything to do with how you organize your faith. They will have everything to do with how you think about your hope. Here's the first question. What in life is my deepest abiding problem? What is my greatest, deepest, most abiding problem? What is the human dilemma? What is the human struggle? And the corollary question is, how in the world will it ever be solved? Now, I think that we live in the midst of a culture that whispers and murmurs and screams an answer to those questions. That is dramatically different than what you find on the pages of the word of God. And I think there is evidence that we are being influenced by the answer of that culture. And it's very tempting as you deal with your own struggle. It's very tempting as you sit in your relationships or stand with your husband or wife or deal with your neighbors or parent your children or struggle with the body of Christ. It's very tempting to locate that problem some, somewhere outside of yourself. If only I had a more understanding husband. I have this husband, he's in ways a great guy, but he wouldn't understand romance if it hit him in the face. Oh, oh, I, I know I should be uh, kinder and more patient. I know a soft answer turns away wrath and a harsh word stirs up anger. But whoever wrote that wasn't the parent of my children. I know I should be more disciplined and more faithful at my work, but I work for a boss who seems never to be satisfied, who is the most ornery, ignorant human being I've ever made I've ever met. It's very, very tempting to locate it outside of myself. And to think that maybe change would be be for me, change in the situation, change in the location, change in the relationship, change somehow outside of myself. The Bible says something dramatically different. And if you don't get it, if you don't functionally embrace it, you will not live the way God has called you to live as a believer. And I am deeply persuaded there are hordes of brothers and sisters around us who are content to play with the box because of the way they've answered those questions. Turn with me, if you would, to Romans 7. This is not what you would call a happy passage of Scripture. but is significant nonetheless. Paul in Romans 1 through 3 has laid out a very effective theology of sin. A theology, when understood, indicts every human being that ever lived. In Romans 4 and 5, he argues for the futility of thinking that I can ever find acceptance with God on the platform of my own performance. And lays before us the glory of the righteousness of Christ that is given over to my account in justification. In Romans 6, he lays before us the stunning reality of our union with Christ. And the fact that in that union with Christ... The power of sin has been broken. And then you hit Romans 7. Whenever I read through uh, Romans, it, it hits me with a jolt, almost with a bit of a shock. Because what Paul wants us to understand is although the power of sin has been broken in Christ, the presence of sin still remains. And that's why Romans 7 sits where it sits in this letter. And it's, it's amazing that Paul speaks in these dramatic autobiographical terms uh, what humility there is in these words. And he speaks for all of us who would celebrate our new life in Christ, but who would understand that we all live somewhere between the already and the not yet. Where there is still the struggle of sin inside of all of us. Where everyone here needs the grace of Christ as much today as you needed it the first day that you believed. Let me read for you. I'm reading from the NIV. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. Boy, if you can't relate to that, you're seriously comatose. For what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. And as it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but is sin living in me. I know that nothing good lives in me. That is in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. And if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. What a wretched man I am! Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in the sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. I want to point you to four words that I think wonderfully get at our struggle with remaining sin. And four words that once you get a hold of them will draw you to hold with both hands with daily discipline and daily excitement and a deep sense of need onto the present benefits of the work of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you get a hold of these four words, you will no longer be satisfied with playing with the box. First word is there in verse twenty one for I find this law at work. sin is a law. What, what Paul means by that word is this inescapable universal life principle like gravity. Gravity is a law. You can't get up in the morning and say, you know, I'm pretty tired of gravity. Every day it's pressed to the earth, pressed to the earth, pressed to the earth. It gets pretty boring. You know, I get up in the morning and I I feel my feet just glued glued to the the floor. What's up with that? And so I decide one day, you know, I'm going to live a gravity-free life. And uh, I figure that just to test it out, I'll go to the second story of my house and fly to my car. And I I open the window and I launch myself out. Lowella's in the kitchen. She hears a horrible crash on the hood and sees my body in a contorted position on the hood. You see, I can't, with an act of decision say I'm going to somehow some way live outside of gravity I can't do that and in the same way this principle exists inside of me that I can't just in a momentary decision decide I'm going to live outside of that is a powerful analysis think about that for a moment Think about how in this stunning and significant way, sin holds you to the ground. And think about it, there will be a day when you won't be held anymore. Praise God for that. And there'll be a day, by His grace, when we will fly. Praise Him. But listen to this. That day is not today. And you better get that. Use the second word. Another very powerful word. Verse 21, So I find this law at work when I want to do good. Evil is right there with me. For in my inner being I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in the members of my body waging war. Sin is a war. It's a dramatic Internal conflict. It's a war that's fought on the turf of your heart. It's a war fought for control of your soul. Brothers and sisters, I believe that we need to redefine spiritual warfare. We have tended to relegate spiritual warfare to demons and deliverance. If it was a movie, it would have to be written by Stephen King and filmed by Steven Spielberg. Actually, spiritual warfare is a very mundane thing. It happens in all of the little moments of everyday life. It's fought in the hallways and kitchens and bathrooms and bedrooms and vans of everyday life. It's there in every situation and every location of human life. Spiritual warfare is going on all around us and inside of us all the time. There is still a war that's going on. Now, if you're... If you analyze your life, you'll see that that's true. You, you could, there are times when you're very aware of the presence of that battle. Uh, let me give you an example. You know, for example, that you're going to have a hard conversation with somebody. You know it's not going to be easy. And, and you, want, you want to have this conversation in a way that's godly and appropriate. And you, you really are armed with good intention. And in fact, you do that thing that we do where you play the conversation over in your head and you speak in your mind for the other person and you play several renditions of the conversation to make sure you've covered all the potential possibilities, sort of choose your own adventure and, and you feel ready. You, perhaps you've even asked somebody to pray for you. Good thing. And you get in that conversation and you really are armed with a desire for love and unity and understanding and the glory of God. And somewhere in that conversation, the person says something disrespectful or dismissive to you. And all of a sudden, you can feel the emotional temperature begin to change. And all of a sudden, you have this dramatic morphing of agenda. You don't want to have unity anymore. You want to win. You want the person to say, you're right. You've always been right. You're the rightest person I've ever met. I bow at the feet of your rightism. Oh, right one. And, and you end up doing insane things you never wanted to do. And you walk out of the room and you think, I've done it again. I can't believe it. I can remember sitting in the dark on the edge of my bed, having had a late night conversation with my son. I was going to say that went south, but that would be offensive to you. I'm trying to remember the culture in which I now stand. That just went bad. I had thought about this conversation. It didn't start out bad. And he started to argue with me. And I had lost it with him. And I sat on my bed feeling so defeated. And I prayed in my tears. God, when am I ever going to win this war? When is it ever going to happen? I don't want to speak to my children this way. I don't want to say these things anymore. I want to be an example of your love and your grace and your wisdom. And Father, I blew it again. Sin is a war. But Paul's not done. Verse 23, but I see another law at work in the mirrors of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my my members. Sin holds you captive. Sin is enslaving. Sin is imprisoning. Who of us haven't experienced the enslaving, the addicting power of sin? I, I want to give this to you in, in small forms that, that you can relate to. Let's, let's pretend that you've, you've really began, begun to understand that one of the ways that pleasure has way too much significance in your life is by the way you eat. And you really begin to think, and I, I mean this seriously, that you eat sinfully. And you tell yourself, this is wrong. This is not honoring to my Lord. And it's surely not physically healthy. And so you commit yourself that dinner, that day, to only eat one piece of chocolate cake instead of your normal three. And again, you are, you are, you are quite, quite encouraged that you've even made the commitment. And you get through the meal and you, you actually eat one piece of chocolate cake. With a degree of your personal commitment to chocolate, that's wonderful for you. And, and you feel a bit of a sense of victory. You decide later on the evening you're going to watch some television and you walk through the kitchen to get to the family room and there's a piece of chocolate cake sitting on the counter. And in a flash of thought, you think, well, if I cut this up into quarters and take a quarter, that's still pretty much of a victory. You know, I usually eat three, one and a quarter. That's still less than half. The angels would rejoice over that. And, well, you've, after you eat the cake, you, you realize you're a little bit thirsty and you go up stairs and you uh, go to get a glass of something to drink. And you think, well, another quarter doesn't really make any difference. You know, I'm still at half. You're still feeling OK about it. The phone rings, the phone's in the kitchen, the closest one, and when you get off the phone, you realize you have chocolate on your hands. You don't even know what happened. But you look at the plate, and there's only a quarter of the cake left. <laughs> and you notice there's chocolate on your mouth. You're standing there, and you are convinced you're hearing, eat me. Eat me. And in defeat, you say, I've already blown it. I might as well finish the rest of the cake. Now, I would propose to you what I've done humorously is not very humorous. I would propose that we must not minimize the scarily addictive and enslaving potential of sin we we must not be satisfied with little steps of self-reformation that only lose their power within a few days sin is a law sin is a war Sin is a prison. The fourth word that Paul uses in this passage that's so important is the word rescue. If sin is a law. If sin is a is a war. If sin is a prison, then I live every day as a man in need of deep and abiding rescue. Brothers and sisters, you don't understand the gospel unless you understand this truth. The thing that you need to be rescued from is you. And yes, you live in a fallen world. And yes, that fallen world will trouble you. But listen, it's always the evil inside of me that connects me to the evil outside of me. And if you don't get that, you will... You will diminish your Christian experience down to the participation in programs and duty. And there will not be that deep and abiding zeal for the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that will propel and motivate everything you do and everything you say. Because you say, I need the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'll be satisfied with an episodic, external, programmatic Christianity. Not one that's driven by a deep sense of personal need. Not one that's driven by a deep sense of personal appreciation for my inclusion in the grace of Christ. Not one that holds with both hands onto my Lord and Savior. And is as full of zeal and purpose and discipline and accountability because I understand that I live between the already and the not yet. And there's a law inside of me, there's a war inside of me. There's a prison inside of me and I need rescue. I would ask you this morning, are you celebrating the gift? Are you just amazed that it's been given to you? do you draw it to your chest and hold it in your arms and you say amazing grace how sweet the sound if I, if I watched with you the video of your last six weeks would I say this is a person who is celebrating the gift or this is a person who's content to play with a box. This passage has come personally to me with a renewed power, and a couple of years ago i I began determining that when I arise in the morning actually before I arise I would I would pray every morning still in bed my first conscious thoughts these three prayers the first one is this Lord I'm a man in desperate need of your help this morning second prayer Lord In the sweetness of your love and grace, won't you please send your helpers my way today? Third prayer. And Lord, won't you please give me the humility to receive the help when it comes? You live, already have received the glorious, justifying grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. But not yet has that grace completed its work. And so there is still that law inside of you. There is still that war inside of you. There are still places where you get imprisoned. But there is a gift. We don't hold on for hope to a system of redemption. We hold on to a Redeemer. Praise Him. And that Redeemer is named Emmanuel. Not just because he came to earth, but because in the grandeur of his grace, he has made you the place where he dwells. The gift is not a theology. The gift is not an outline. The gift is not a program. The gift is a person. And his name is Emmanuel. Are you Holding with both hands onto the gift or have you sadly become complacent and quite willing to be content with playing with with the box let's pray Lord, we thank you for the shocking clarity of your word. Lord, we really we really want to be that community that at once is the saddest and most celebrant community on earth. Sad because we understand the ravages of sin, but celebrant because we understand the wonderful glories of the gift of of your grace in your person and your work. And Lord, it is, it is easy for us to be complacent. It's, it's easy for us in subtle ways to redefine the nature of the dilemma. Lord, we don't want to be those people who would settle for playing with the box. Oh, may we celebrate the gift May in relationships of accountability, in lifestyle of discipline, may there be a constant hunger and a constant pursuit of that gift to know you more deeply, to know you more fully, to follow you more faithfully. We would pray. Not for our glory, but for the glory that's due your sweet and strong name. Amen.
0: The Southeastern family hopes you have enjoyed this message delivered in chapel at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Our mission is to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We appreciate your current and continued prayer support for our faculty, staff, and students. We also hope that you will consider financially supporting our ministry and encourage you to go to our website at www.scbts.edu to find out how you can partner with us. In addition, if you are considering a theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, we hope that you will consider Southeastern. You can find out more information about us on the web. Again, that address is www.scbts.edu. Thank you for listening.